0: If you have a Bible today, we'll be looking at John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. So hear the word of God. There was a man sent from John, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that he all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, I do pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, if you're visiting, we just started last week a series on the Gospel of John. And by series, I mean I'm going to... I'm scheduled at least for the next six months to preach on it, and I think that takes us through chapter five. I was going to preach on John maybe the whole year. I don't know how much that would go, get us through, but either way, we're beginning now. And so the question I want to begin with this morning is this one, and, and many of you are going to say absolutely not. Can you remember your first eye exam? Right, Some of you, your first eye exam might have been 50 years ago. Right, my first My first real eye exam was about... 10 years ago, because I didn't think I needed help, right? So I I grew up, and you know, you get eye tests at the driver's license place, or I'm in the army, they make you read the chart, and as long as you can read it, you just go. And probably about 10 years ago, when a a church member um, bought me a large print Bible, (laughs) because she said me looking with my reading glasses was getting distracting. I thought maybe I should go. My wife sent me to the eye doctor, and I was amazed because I'd always been I've been tested, but those of you who've had a real eye exam, you go in there, and the doctor tells you to look through the little things, and it's blurry, and then he says, how's this chunk, how's this chunk, how's this chunk, go back, go back, go back. And it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. I never knew that was supposed to look like that. And so, you know, having the right, and so you get a prescription, you get eyeglasses, and suddenly the world looks completely different to you. The same thing happened to me with hearing aids. Probably, I don't know, if if my eyeglasses were 10 years ago, maybe the hearing aids were about eight. Is I was I went and finally got my hearing tested, and an audiologist was like, "Yeah, you need help." <laughs> and I remember getting my hearing aids, and I did it at, at the big Costco hearing aid center and walking, get, the, the man fitted me with the hearing aids, and I knew something was up, because he said, wait, 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 we're in a soundproof room, and he went to the door, and he opened the door, and he stepped out, and he wanted to see me walk out for some reason. And when I walked out of that soundproof room with hearing aids for the first time, I just started crying. Because I didn't realize there was so much stuff to hear. I had no idea. And the reason he did that is he, he said it, it never gets old, him watching people here for the first time. So we're looking at the Gospel of John. What's that have to do with anything? We're looking at the Gospel of John, and John wants to make sure that we have the right lens as we consider all these things that he's going to tell us about Jesus. He wants to make sure that we're, we're looking at Jesus through the right glasses, if you will, and that we're hearing Jesus with, the, with our best possible hearing. And so if you remember last week, I told you that um, what John wants us, John is quite different than the other three Gospels. There's four Gospels. Three of them are called the Synoptics because they're like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you have John, which is different. And if you remember what I told you, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in that what they really are doing is they're trying to, to tell us all the things Jesus said and all the things Jesus did. Right? That's their emphasis. What did Jesus say or teach and what did he do? So when you read the book of Matthew, you have like the Sermon on the Mount, you know, this really long teaching by jesus and you have parables all over the book of matthew for example or when you get to to mark he doesn't necessarily spend so much time on telling us what jesus said as telling us what jesus did if you remember if you read the book of mark mark's favorite word is the book immediately right immediately jesus did this and then immediately jesus did that and immediately he did that he just takes us bang bang boom from one thing to another So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what Jesus said and what Jesus, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what Jesus said and what Jesus did. John, on the other hand, he wants us to consider not what Jesus said and did, although that's in there, of course. He wants us more to consider who Jesus is and what that means for us. And the the prologue is the way he starts that. And when I say prologue, I mean basically the first half of chapter 1 in John. The, the, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all of that. And in fact, last week, we looked at those first five verses, and you remember, we saw in the first five verses of this gospel that, for one thing, Jesus was God, that Jesus was the agent of creation, that all things were created through him. And then the last thing, that Jesus was the incarnation of the Torah, or God's wisdom, that when we you read the book of John in Greek, it says in the beginning was the Logos. And Logos, for the Greek-speaking Jew, would have meant the Torah or God's wisdom. And Jesus is the incarnation of those things. And the reason that that's important, if you remember, is because Jesus is going to have conflict with Jewish leaders throughout the Gospel of John. And every conflict revolves around whether or not uh, he's following the Torah or he's observing the Torah correctly. And Jesus, to paraphrase, says... No, I am the Torah, right? You guys don't get it. If you're you're not following me, you're the ones who are not following the Torah. And so you see that come up over and over again. Today, as we keep those things in mind, three things we're going to look at today. We're going to look at first the witness of John, then we're going to look at the world's reaction, and finally, we're going to talk about seeing the face of God, okay? So the witness of John, the world's reaction, and the face of God. Let's talk about John first. Verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, the question is, you know, John is in the middle. Of, uh, he, he just got through with this great, tremendous statement of theology. You know, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And then why does he shift gears and say, now there was a man named John There's two reasons that he brings up John, and I'm going to probably call John the Baptist here just to differentiate him from John, the author of this letter. Why does he bring up the Baptist right now? And there's two possible reasons, really. One is negative, one is positive, and both are probably true. The negative reason is, you remember, John the Baptist had been around for a while, and John the Baptist had a pretty large following, and John the Baptist, remember, when he preached, people listened. And John had many disciples, and so John's disciples, several of them we know, just from other writers, um, began to think that maybe John is the one. Maybe John the Baptist is the coming Messiah. Maybe John the Baptist is the one who will deliver us. Maybe John the Baptist is the one we've been waiting for. Maybe John the Baptist is the light that lights all men. And John the Apostle says, no, he was not the light. He's not the one. In fact, he, he goes throughout, the, the, the. in a couple of weeks, we'll look at the passage where the leaders, the Jewish leaders come to John and say, are you the one? And he says, no. They ask him three times until finally he just yells at them. John the Baptist is not the one. And John the Apostle wants to make exceedingly clear, that there that john the baptist is not the one you should be expecting now he also wants to make it exceedingly clear that john the baptist is exceedingly important in other words negatively he is not messiah positively speaking he is witness to the messiah and that's extremely important now what does a witness do well when we talk about witness in many ways it's a legal term and it was a legal term back then what does a witness do? Notice, remember, he said there was a man sent from God's name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Well, a witness basically does three or four things, right? A witness points to the to the truth. Right, if you're in a courtroom, you know we've all seen uh, Law and Order: Criminal Intent, and you, you're someone is a witness and they're sitting in the dock, and they say that, you know the lawyer says, "Can you point to the person who committed such and such a crime?" And they point, yes, or they point, you know, and they, they do that. But the other thing they do is they also they not only point to the truth, but ideally, <laughs> uh, they tell the truth and they tell a story. Right? That is also true. So what did John the Baptist do? He pointed to the truth, Jesus, and he told a story about the truth, Jesus. And then the last thing they do is they basically commit to the truth. That's something you don't really keep in mind until you're called to be a witness. Why do you think people don't want to be witnesses against mobsters? Because once you have become a witness, you have committed to some taking a side. Committed to, to being the, the, to one side of a story or not, and if the other side doesn't like it, you know they could, you know, give you cement shoes and all that kind of stuff. But so John has pointed to the truth. John has told the truth, and John's committing to the truth. And why is that important? Did you notice? He, John told us the the reason. It says that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. In other words, John the Baptist wasn't just coming to prove a point. He wasn't just he wasn't telling up uh, talking about Jesus just to, to for an apologetic purpose. You know, but we tend to think about bearing witness and we think about you know how can we own people who don't believe or how can we own the atheists, right? And what, what evidence can we present and all these kinds of things. And John the Baptist's reason. For pointing to the truth, for telling the truth, and committing to the truth, was so that other people might believe through him. And we see that happening. That John the Baptist, later on, I think it's you know verses 50 or, or 51 or two, that Jesus is John the Baptist sees Jesus walking along, and he tells his disciples, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one you should be following, not me." He's the one who can change your life, not me. He's the one who can reconcile you to God, not me. He is the one who ultimately will give his life and shed his blood and raise again from the dead so that you might become a child of God, not me. The purpose of John's pointing to the truth and bearing witness to the truth was so that other people might believe. And guess what? You and I have the same role. You and I are called to the same mission. All of us, if you are a Christian at least, you're called to point to the truth. You're called to tell the story about the truth. You're called to commit to the truth. And the purpose of that is so that other people also might believe the truth. We continue on. We find out how that basically... How, how, so, so, John's mission or ministry was to point people to Jesus and to point people to the Lamb of God. And the question is, how did that go? <laughs> John's, John's going to give us basically a spoiler alert here. In other words, he's going to give us a summary of the whole ministry of Jesus in the next few verses. And we'd look at the world's reaction to, to the light coming among them. Look at verse 9. It says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So notice first he says about Jesus, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world why does he call Jesus the true light? The word true there is, I think in Greek, it's, it's alethios or something like that. And it basically means the, the real thing. It, it, you know, it means the, the actual light, the real light, the true light, the, the ultimate light. You know, If you think about other religions, and this is a, a gross summary of something C.S. Lewis might say, is that they all sort of point to the truth. They all sort of have part of the truth. But only Jesus is the truth. He is the, the, he, he is the myth that has become reality. He is the incarnation of the wisdom and the, the Torah of God. He is the incarnation of the truth. In fact, Jesus will say of himself, I am what? I am the truth. He doesn't point to the truth. Jesus is the truth. He doesn't point to the light. Jesus is the light. And John says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And how did they react Notice verse 10, it says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. Now, the word world there is important, because when we think of the word world, we just think of what? The earth, or you know, you know, this ball, this planet that we are on, or we think of it as all people. Now, when the, in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospel of John, when John uses this word world, it has a very specific meaning. And it's the word cosmos, right? In Greek, it's K-O-S-M-O-S. And this is from the, the, the Enhanced Strong's Dictionary. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the weak Strong's Dictionary definition would be, but this one. So the word cosmos, this is the definition. It's the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. The aggregate of things earthly, the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc., which, although hollow and frail and fleeting, stir desire, seduce from God, and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. So when John uses the word world, he is talking about the, the whole mass of humanity that is hostile and alienated from God. Now, when you keep that in mind, think how weighty that makes the, 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 not only the word world, but the passages that contain the word world. Right? Maybe the most famous Bible verse in the world is John 3.16, which begins how? For God so loved the world. And I can remember in college debating, does that mean all people or does that mean you know, all people without distinction or all people without exception? It doesn't mean any of that. It means if, if, if what this definition is true, what it means is that for God so loved alienated and hostile humanity that he sent his son down into the muck with them. That what this means is that, that God was not just pursuing good people. God was pursuing bad people. God was pursuing people who were hostile to him, who were alienated to him. Jesus came into the world, and the world did not know him. What we know, though, but, by that statement is that Jesus was all in. Jesus wasn't, It didn't say that Jesus stood from afar and looked at this alienated world that was hostile to him. It says that he came into the world, that he became part of the world, that he entered into the hostile system and sought to save it from their sins. And it says, and the world did not know him, generally speaking. And even more sad is what he says next. It says, verse 10, it says, he was in the world, even though the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. Another way to translate the beginning could be that he came home and they didn't recognize him. In, in other words, the whole Old Testament is this, this testimony to the fact that God is going to save his people Israel and that he will send Messiah and that eventually one day their king will come and that God will dwell with them forever. And, and John says that that happened. He came to his own people and the people who should have recognized him, and they did not receive him. They didn't embrace him. In other words, his own people, they celebrated the Torah in written form, but they rejected it when it came in the flesh. In some sense, they idolized the Torah. Their lives revolved around the Torah, but when the Torah actually showed up, they didn't know what to do with it, and so they rejected it. They rejected Jesus. And then, of course, one of the, what I always say, one of the best words in the Bible is but, in verse 12, and it says, but, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, remember whenever you have but, get rid of everything that came before it. So the world did not accept him. His own people did not receive him, but someone did. And it says, to all who, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, what does it mean to receive Jesus? It means to, to welcome him as God's agent, to welcome him as God's Messiah, and to believe in his name basically means trusting him in his claims, right? In the, in the ancient Near East, and even to some extent today, someone's name equaled who they were. When he says to believe in his name, that means you're believing everything about this guy and everything that he represents and everything that he brings to the table. And you're trusting him. You're throwing your lot in with him. And he says, those who do that, those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, that's sort of an odd phrase because it also could say he gave the authority to become children of God. Why is that important? What is he saying there? What he's saying is for those who have received him, for those who have trusted in his name, they now basically have the right to make certain claims about themselves. So if I trust Jesus, suddenly I have the right to make certain claims about myself. I have the authority to say things about myself, namely that I am a child of God. It's interesting, you know how like if you listen to Spotify at the end of the year, it'll say the song you listen to most this year. The song that I listened to most last year was I am who you say I am. Do You guys know that song? Because one of the lines in the chorus is I'm chosen, not forsaken. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I live two blocks from the church. It takes me about that length of a song to get here. But it never gets old hearing that. You see, because in some vague sense, in the, 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 if God created humanity, that they are his, quote, children. But that doesn't mean you live in his household. That doesn't mean you, you have access to him. That doesn't mean you are reconciled to him. You're only a child of God if you have trusted in the Son of God. And becoming a son of God gives you the right to, to have the privileges of the sons of God, that you can do things that other people can't. You know, Judy and I are watching a show on Netflix, Outer Banks. I don't know if you've seen it. Basically, it's about the Outer Banks in North Carolina and this class division between super the, between the working class who are called pogues and the, the very rich people who are called kooks. And it's about hunting for lost treasure on a Spanish galleon. And basically, a pogue and a kook get together, and the kook, this girl, her dad is like super wealthy, and her dad has donated all these documents about treasure hunting to the library at Chapel Hill. And you know what it takes for her to get access to this classified, secret private library? She just has to walk up and say, my dad, my dad gave this up. Uh, I'm a child of this guy." And they say, Come on in, my dear, (laughs) right? Welcome in. That's how we are. I mean, I've heard Tim Keller say before, only Christians, it's like only a child of a king can go to the king's bedroom at three in the morning and ask him for a glass of water. But that's that's who you and I are in the eyes of God. If you've trusted Jesus, you are his child and you have access to him 24-7. And that there's there's more than that in the sense, what does it cost us to become children of God? And the answer in verse 13 is nothing. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God wants us, to, want, John wants to remind us that the way we become children of God is all about God. That it is God's work that that brings us to him. It's not about our works. We don't do a bunch of good stuff and then show up and hope he receives us that if we are children we are born not of the flesh not of, of the will of man but we are born of God that God himself is the one who draws us God himself is the one who opens our eyes and God is the, himself is the one who, who makes us new who gives us new hearts what do we need to do we need to respond to that we need to turn to him and we need to receive it that's that's the work that you and I do in other words it's all about grace which leads to the last point here. Look at verses 14 through 18. John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through jesus christ now what is john doing here john basically is making a very blunt statement about the superiority of grace over law and the superiority of moses or jesus over moses remember the whole the whole book from here on out is going to be jesus making the case that moses was pointing to him that moses wrote about him that moses is going to accuse the jewish leaders of not having followed the law because they haven't followed jesus Now, let me do something interesting. I want to read to you, not the passage again, let me read to you from Exodus a little bit. So in the book of Exodus... If you remember the book of Exodus, which I'm sure all of you guys know it by heart, right? In the book of Exodus in chapter 32, the, the, that's where the whole golden calf incident has happened, right? Moses has gone up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and Aaron has led Israel into making golden calves, and they're having a big party, and Moses comes down, and he sees this thing, and he says, Ai, and he throws the tablets down and breaks them, which I would have been a little more careful, but nonetheless, Moses breaks these tablets, and he goes to God, and God says, you know what, Moses, I'm done, I'm done with Israel. I'm just gonna smite them and I'm gonna start all over with you. And Moses was like, bup, 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 bup. You promised though. You promised that you were gonna save them. And if you don't save them, all the other nations are gonna say that you're weak and worthless and no good. And God was like, okay, so I will save them. And then Moses he he thinks he's he's on a roll like persuading God of things, and so he says this after that. He said, Well, let me read you verse 17, right? God says, I'm not going to smite them. Verse 17 of chapter 33 says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Then verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. God said, What? No, he didn't. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock while my glory passes by, and I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Okay? So Moses says, let me see your glory. And God was like, no. No one can see my glory. No one can see my face. What I'll do is I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock. When I pass by, I'll put my hand over you, and that'll just have to do. That'll have to be good enough. So in the next chapter, this begins to happen. And as God passes by, he says something very specific about himself. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 34, it says, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now the important phrase there is steadfast love and faithfulness. God says, this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, why is steadfast love and faithfulness so important, that phrase? Because in Greek, that phrase is translated as grace and truth. In in other words, the, the thing that God says about him to Moses, the final thing is that I am the Lord abounding in love and graciousness and full of grace and truth. Now, notice what happens here. Notice what John says about Jesus and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what John is saying here is like Moses, like with Moses, God came in tabernacle. God came in tabernacle and dwelled in a tabernacle with Israel. And he says, In Jesus the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But not only that, we saw his glory. Think about how great Moses is to to the Jewish faith. And God says to 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 the greatest representative of the Jewish faith, the one who wrote the law, you cannot see my glory. I'm sorry. It just isn't possible. And John the Apostle is saying here right at the outset of his book, I saw it. We saw his glory. And I I think John is not speaking metaphorically there. Remember, John was on the Mount of Transfiguration. John was at the cross. John saw Jesus after the resurrection. He saw the glory that Moses only longed for. And not only that, it was the glory of the Father. And not only that, it was full of what? All of the things that the Father says about himself, we saw in the person of Jesus. It was right there. That that not not only were we not alienated, not only did we not cower before him, but we got to see everything. And not only that, he says, um, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There was a lot of debate over what that phrase means. We have seen grace upon grace, and I think that the. the the simplest reading is the easiest one, is that in him we have we have received an abundance, an overwhelming amount of grace, more grace than we could even imagine. And grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. And he said we received more than we could handle. And what he's also saying here is basically, he says, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That basically we received that, to which the law pointed, grace and truth. All the conflicts, you know, the conflicts that Jesus will have about Moses and about the Torah. John isn't saying, by the way, that Moses was wrong or bad, or even in error. And he's not saying that the Torah is wrong or bad or in error. What he's saying is that if you're looking for the fulfillment of the law, and the Torah, if you're looking for the one to whom Moses pointed, the only place you will find it is in Jesus. He is the one. He is the fulfillment. He is that thing that we have longed for our whole life. And he also reminds us that because of Jesus, we can do something that Moses never could do. And that's see the face of God. You, you remember in John chapter 14, when Jesus said, you know, I'm going to a place where you cannot come and fill said, you know, What do you mean by that and at the end of the day jesus says to him if you've seen me you've seen the father in other words if you want to know what god is like if you want to know god you have to know what jesus is like the way you know what jesus is like is in the pages of the new testament and in this case in the book of john do you remember the the movie brew baker one of the greatest movies of all time, I think. I think it was done in 1980, so many of you may not even been born when it came out. Basically, Robert Redford is, is a prison warden in an Arkansas prison, except no one knows that. In, in other words, the movie opens up, and Robert Redford is just riding on a prison bus just like any other convict and he goes to prison just like any other convict, and he experiences the corruption, and he experiences all these bad things in prison. And at some point, there's a young actor that no one's never heard of named Morgan Freeman, who actually loses it. He takes a guard hostage, and he starts making all these demands. And he says, I want new paint on the walls, and I want to watch TV sometimes, and I want this, and I want that. And then finally he says, I want to see the man, or I'm killing this guard. And then Robert Redford steps out of the crowd. He says, "I'm the man." And everyone laughs at him. And he has—he looks at the guards and he says, "Try me." And he goes to Morgan Freeman. He basically says, "All those things, you've got him." And he takes over the whole prison. In other words, he was the man, and no one knew it. He was the man, and no one embraced him until he asserted himself and revealed himself. In the pages of the book, this gospel, Jesus reveals himself over and over again. The question is whether or not you and I will receive him. And receiving him and believing him in him have life in his name. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that as we continue through this gospel of John, we would see Jesus. We would see his glory. We would see the face of God in him. And having seen his face, we will be changed. Amen and amen.